Our Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you again. Uh, we thank you for this day, for your many blessings on us. We thank you for the food we've enjoyed. And we thank you for your word. And uh, we thank you that uh, we've just heard it read and we pray as we consider that now that uh, you would again instruct us, teach us, encourage us and build us up in the faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw this morning um, Habakkuk's uh, struggle with the problem of evil that he was seeing all around him. And uh, I mentioned that, of course, you only have to turn on the news at night and we're bombarded with the same sort of images of war in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria at the moment, uh, suicide bombings closer to home, the sort of uh, abuse and murder and drunkenness and drugs and gambling. And we want to know, why won't God stop the evil? Why doesn't he do something about it? Habakkuk's first complaint then we saw was about the problem of evil amongst his own people of Judah and God's answer to that complaint was that he would bring the Babylonians who would outdo them in wickedness and evil to bring an end to their evil, which was not exactly the answer Habakkuk was expecting. And so we saw he gave his second complaint to God that since God is holy and pure and cannot even stand to look at evil, how can he tolerate the wicked Babylonians? How can he use them to bring them against his own people of Judah? So now we'll see in chapter 2 God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint. Will God sit back in silence and do nothing while the Babylonians continue to do their evil? And for that matter, will God sit back in silence and do nothing while people in our time continue to do their violence and evil? Well, we begin with chapter 2, verse 1, which uh, is really, probably should go with chapter chapter 1, the previous chapter. So it's the end of Habakkuk's second complaint, where he says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk is saying there that he will wait for God's reply. He's prayed to God, he's poured out his heart to him, now he'll wait for his reply. Personally, I don't really like waiting. Don't know about you. Uh, we live in the days of instant gratification and I'm used to getting what I want instantly. And so I want answers now and I want God to fix up the world now. Uh, I want solutions and I want action and I want the problem dealt with yesterday. I don't know if you'll like that. But I have to learn patience. And uh, God has his reasons for delaying his response when I pray to him. And learning patience is a hard lesson to learn. But of course we learn things when we have to wait. Uh, God often has good reasons for making us wait. I don't know again, all of you, and uh, perhaps you're frustrated at the moment. Maybe you are expecting an answer to prayer and waiting for it and it's not happening well, we have to learn patience, which is something that we Westerners are not very good at. Habakkuk says here that he'll wait to see what God will answer. And uh, right at the end of verse 1 there, he says after he gets that answer, he will then give his own response. So we're going to look at God's answer now in the rest of chapter 2, and then in the last session we'll look at Habakkuk's response to what he's learnt from God as we look at chapter 3. But let's look now at God's answer to his complaint. In verse 2 he says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, 
make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. So God did answer Habakkuk's prayer and complaints. And God wants to make it known not just to Habakkuk but to everyone. So even future generations, Habakkuk is to write down his vision so that others may know it. And here we are today, 2,600 years later, reading exactly what God told Habakkuk. So this is written down for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. And what is God's reply? Well, basically, it's wait. So verse 3, he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God's answer is that the vision, the revelation from God, will come true. It's certain. It will certainly come, he says. It will not delay. It might seem slow to us, but it will certainly come true. And so Habakkuk is told to wait for it, to wait patiently for God's word to come true. So God will judge the Babylonians. He won't put up with their evil forever, but he won't judge them straight away. So Habakkuk is told to wait patiently for God's word to come true. In verses 4 and 5, the unrighteous people like the Babylonians are described. Verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's puffed up or proud or arrogant and the soul within him is, is not right. It's not upright. And look at verse 5 at how he's described. It says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So this is saying he's intoxicated by wine. He's intoxicated by his conquests, but they are a traitor. They betray him. He's an arrogant man, restless, never at rest, never content. He's greedy, rapacious, constantly gathering the nations, it says, collecting the peoples, bent on conquest and never satisfied. And like Sheol, like the grave itself, his greed is never satisfied. Like death, he never has enough victims. The Babylonians were an evil nation, bent on conquest, bent on violence, never satisfied, always restless for more death, more conquest, arrogant, puffed up, unrighteous, evil. And so God will judge them. They will be judged and destroyed. But in the midst of that description in verses 4 and 5, there's a contrast. There's a but in the second half of verse 4. By contrast with the puffed up, arrogant, unrighteous Babylonians, there are the righteous. The righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous, of course, are those who trust God. And this is saying they will live. They will not be destroyed in God's judgment. They will live and they'll live by their faith, by trusting in God. Those who wait patiently for God, those who trust in him, will live. So God is telling Habakkuk here, wait patiently. Evil will be judged. Keep trusting God. He will do right. His word will come true and he will judge the wicked. Again, I must admit I'm an impatient person and when somebody does something wrong to me, uh, well, I want justice. I don't want the person who does wrong to me to get away with it. And if I see, for that matter, other people who 
have wrongs done to them, if there are people especially who are helpless and who are being oppressed and persecuted, I want the people who do that to them to be brought to justice. I want evil dictators, terrorists, abusers to be judged for what they've done and to be judged now. And I think there is such a thing as righteous anger. But as a Christian, of course, I know that I mustn't take revenge. God will do that. He will be the one who judges on judgment day. And so I know that the Nazis who uh, killed most of my family in the Holocaust will be raised from the dead on judgment day and they will stand before God and face the full force of his wrath in judgment. And the suicide bomber who is so sure that he'll be in paradise with Allah, he will wake up to face God in judgment, to face the full fury of his wrath. God's judgment, I think, is a terrifying prospect. Tyrants and oppressors will not escape his judgment and they will face the full force of it on judgment day. But again, I'm often impatient and I want them judged now. I want God to stop their evil now. And I don't know why God doesn't do that, but he knows why. He has his reasons. And so I need to trust him. I need to be patient. God will judge them, but in his timing. And so I need to live now by faith, by patiently trusting God that he knows what he's doing and why he's doing it and he will judge. As a Christian, I believe, of course, in the resurrection of the dead and so I know that the wicked will not get away with what they have done. God will raise them from the dead. They will face him in judgment. But even in this life, sometimes God judges. And then when he does, those who are oppressed by such evil tyrants and abusers get to see their downfall in this life. Verses 6 to 20 that finish this chapter contain five woes against the Babylonians which speak of God's judgment that comes upon them in their lifetime. They get to see it. The Babylonians back in uh, chapter 1 verse 10, it said there that they scoffed at their opposition. But when God judges their evil, their victims will scoff at them. So it's like a punishment fitting the crime. The tables are turned. Verse 6 begins the five woes by saying, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing? So the victims of the Babylonians who suffered so much evil at their hands will get to see God judge them in their lifetime and then they will get to scoff at their downfall just as the Babylonians had scoffed at them. So justice will be done. Well, let's look briefly at these five woes, these five pronouncements of God's judgment that come upon the Babylonians. This is God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint. He might use evil regimes like the Babylonians for a time, but only for a time. And they will not get away with the wickedness that they have done. God will judge them for it. The first woe is in verses 6 to 8. Verse 6 says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. This is talking about how the Babylonians plundered the nations that they conquered, mercilessly taking their goods, heaping up what was not their own. And again, the question is asked by Habakkuk, how long? How long will God stay silent and sit back and do nothing, it seems, and allow the Babylonians to get away with what they're doing? Well, the answer comes in verses 7 and 8. 
Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So it's saying the tables will be turned. The nations who are plundered by the Babylonians will in turn plunder them. Those who are victimised by the Babylonians will suddenly arise and make them tremble and the Babylonians will become their victims. So the punishment will fit the crime as is so often the case in the Old Testament. As the Babylonians plundered many nations, they will in turn be plundered and it's because of their violence and bloodshed. second woe is in verses 9 to 11. We'll read it again. It says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. This is saying that the Babylonians hope to make their empire impregnable, setting it on high, setting their nest on high, safe out of the reach of harm, hoping to build this secure, fortified empire that will be able to withstand any attack from hostile forces. But their fortress of safety came at the expense of others. Their ruler used evil gain to build his house or dynasty here. The Babylonians, verse 10 says, cut off many people as they plundered and killed them to secure their own wealth and security. But of course no one is impregnable against God. No amount of wealth or security measures can protect against God's judgment. And so they forfeited their life, God says. The very stones and beams of the houses that they have built with their ill-gotten gains will cry out on judgment day against them because they will be the evidence for what they have done to other nations. And so God will judge the Babylonians for their violence and bloodshed by which they built their empire. The third woe is similar in verses 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labour merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? This is saying the Babylonians built their empire again with blood, with bloodshed. It was founded upon iniquity, evil. They are guilty of bloodshed and sin. But verse 13 says it was all for nothing. God will judge them. They're working a way to build their empire just to be burned in the fires of God's judgment. They're wearying themselves for nothing. Their work is futile and in vain and God will bring them down in judgment. Uh, Notice well in verse 13 that it's not just the Babylonians but it's the peoples, the nations. This is spoken against all such evil empires. For the day will come when all evil empires are removed and all that is left is the perfect kingdom of God. Verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's kingdom will come. The earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord instead of being filled with violence and evil. God's people will know him and serve him in peace. God will remove all wicked kingdoms so that only his kingdom remains and all such evil empires built on violence and bloodshed, whether that be the Babylonians or the Nazis, 
or communists or militant Islamists or whoever it is, all such evil empires will be removed. The fourth woe comes in verses 15 to 17. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. This is talking about how the Babylonians ruthlessly oppressed their victims. They made them drunk so they could laugh at their nakedness. Uh, the image here is probably more violent rather than sexual uh, about how they debased their prisoners, humiliated them, pouring out their wrath upon them. And again, the punishment will fit the crime. God will do to them what they did to others. And so verse 16, it says, You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. So they will be made to drink from the cup of God's wrath. They will be made drunk on the judgment of God. They will be exposed and debased and humiliated. They will be filled with shame. Note how at the beginning and end of that verse, verse 16, it speaks twice there about shame and glory. The Babylonians sought to fill the world with the glory of their empire. But instead, verse 14 said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And instead of having glory, the Babylonians will have shame as God judges them. He will judge them and they will drink the cup of his wrath. Final woe comes in verses 18 to 20. It says, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it might seem a bit strange after castigating the Babylonians for their violence and evil that uh, now it talks about their idolatry. But the two are quite connected. The Babylonians would sacrifice to their gods for what they thought were the victories that they received from those gods. So their false religion was used to back up the evil that they were perpetrating. And God here then condemns their false religion. He exposes the stupidity of their idolatry by worshipping just dumb blocks of wood and stone that they have made. The Babylonians have rejected God. They worship idols. They worship themselves. They worship their own might and God will judge them for that. And the chapter then finishes with a contrast in verse 20 which again begins with the word but. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Contrasted with false religion is the truth. The truth that God is in his holy temple. God has spoken from there. He is not dumb, not like the idols. But all the earth, all people will stand before him in judgment and will have nothing left to say. So God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint I think is very clear. God will judge the Babylonians. They will not get away with it. And God did judge them. The Babylonians were a superpower for a very short time, historically speaking. For only about 80 years, much like the Soviet Union, I suppose, they flourished, they oppressed, they tyrannised, and then they were no more. 
In 538 BC, God brought a coalition of the Persians and Medes against the Babylonians who defeated them. God judged them. But he didn't do it straight away. The righteous had to wait patiently in faith for God to judge their oppressors. So God's answer to Habakkuk is clear. God will judge the Babylonians for the evil they have done. He'll use them as an instrument for his purposes but only for a time. The righteous in Judah may have to suffer for a little while but in the end the Babylonians will be judged for the evil that they have done. And so the righteous need to wait patiently in faith for God to judge. Well, I want to think a little bit now about how Habakkuk chapter 2 would apply to us. Uh, One of the best things you can do when you're thinking about that with the Old Testament is to look at how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. And uh, it does quote chapter 2 of Habakkuk directly several times. But what we want to do is not jump straight to us in application, but to look always from the Old Testament and how how it's fulfilled first in Jesus before we look at how it's fulfilled in us. So Jesus himself and the apostles say that the Old Testament is about him first and foremost, not first and foremost about us. So before we apply it to us, we need to look at what it has to say about Jesus. To do that, I want to pick up first on verse 16 of chapter 2. The New Testament picks up on the image of the cup of God's wrath, which is um, not only here in Habakkuk chapter 2, but in several places in the Old Testament. In Mark chapter 10, when James and John asked Jesus if they could sit at his right and his left in the coming kingdom of God, Jesus asked them, could they drink the cup that he would drink? And he's referring to the cup of God's wrath. A few chapters later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that God would take that cup from him and yet that God's will would be done because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs. Though he was innocent of sin himself, he took on himself the judgment that you and I deserve. He took the cup of God's wrath out of your hand and drank it down himself by dying in your place, in mine, to pay the penalty for our sins. We might be distressed by the evil and suffering all around us, But as I said this morning, we too have done many wrong things. We've done things wrong, we have said things wrong, we have thought things wrong. There might be great evil out there with evil tyrants and abusers and criminals and pedophiles and we might be able to look at them and say, well, we're not as bad as they are, but the Bible makes it clear that we too are evil. And we in our sins will face God in judgment. But Jesus took the cup of judgment out of our hands and drank it down himself so that we would not face God's judgment but be spared it and be forgiven our sins and the slate wiped clean. And so now for the righteous, that is for those who trust in God, for those who trust in the death of Jesus, we live, we'll be raised from the dead and we are right with God. We are spared God's judgment by putting our trust in the death of Jesus. And that's how the New Testament also understands Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that the righteous will live by faith. It's quoted in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. And in Romans and Galatians, uh, it's used 
pretty much the same way. That we get right with God, we come into a right relationship with him by faith, by trusting in him. Romans and Galatians makes it quite clear that if we trust in ourselves, if we trust in our good works, if we trust in our decision to believe, in our baptism, in our whatever it is, we are not right with God. If we trust in what God has done for us in the death of Jesus, we are right with God. And so both Romans and Galatians are saying we need to trust in Jesus' death alone. And on that basis, we are declared right with God. The righteous will live by faith. The book of Hebrews is a little bit different to that. You might like to um, look it up with me. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, towards the end of the chapter, verses 35 to 39. Hebrews is much more like the original context of Habakkuk, that it's talking to Christians who are suffering and calling on us to wait patiently for God's judgment to come. Verse 35 says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the writer to the Hebrews there is quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 and he's saying in just a little while suffering will be over. Jesus will return and will deal with evil and suffering once and for all. And so like Habakkuk he's saying the righteous, those who trust in Jesus will live by faith in him. will wait patiently for God to bring Jesus again and bring an end to suffering and evil. God will judge all wickedness and all evil. Sometimes he does it in this lifetime, sometimes not. But evil tyrants, criminals, abusers, persecutors who escape God's judgment in this life will not escape it in the next. They will be raised from the dead to face God in judgment. Hitler will stand before him in judgment. So will Stalin. So will the suicide bombers and they will face his judgment. When Jesus returns, that judgment will come and he will bring an end to all suffering and evil. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will do what is right and judge evil? Can you trust God and wait for that judgment to come? The righteous, Habakkuk says, will live by faith. The righteous will keep trusting in Jesus amidst any suffering and pain that we encounter, waiting patiently for the judgment of God to come where he will bring suffering and evil to an end. God will do something about the evil in our world. He will judge the terrorists and tyrants and abusers. Sometimes he judges them in this lifetime as he did with the Nazis, with the Soviets, with the Babylonians. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 onwards talks about the wrath of God being revealed now against all godlessness and wickedness so that often God does punish the wicked in this lifetime but sometimes he doesn't and it looks like he's doing nothing and like Habakkuk we might ask how long? How long will God do nothing and not judge that wickedness and violence? 
But even if it seems like God is doing nothing, we are urged to trust him. We are urged here to wait patiently in faith for God to act. The righteous will live by faith. God has promised that he will bring Jesus again, that he will judge all evil and bring it to an end. And we need to wait patiently for God to do that. For God cannot tolerate evil or wickedness or sin and he is in control of the nations. I don't know why he's doing things the way he does them. I don't know why he might be doing what he's doing in your life at the moment but God knows why he's doing that. He knows what he's doing and he knows why he's doing it and so I'm called and you are called to trust him, to trust his promises, to trust in the death of Jesus and to wait patiently for Jesus to come again when God will deal with evil once and for all. Let me pray that God will help us to trust him and then we'll take questions. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would bring Jesus again soon. We pray your kingdom will come, that you will bring an end to the evil and violence that we see all around us. Please help us to trust you in the meantime and to wait patiently in faith for you to act. We ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, there were some uh, very good questions in the first session. Almost too good. Uh, So please, again, don't be shy. If you have a question, it's likely other people have the same question uh, or if you have comments, please feel free to make them. Once again, thank you for that uh, lecture. When we uh, look forward in in faith and in patience with Jesus coming again when he'll um, uh, judge or wickedness, etc., is it that um, we are to wait patiently for that to happen and kind of look forward to that happening or is it more that we look forward to his coming where we'll actually be delivered from all evil? So I'm sort of hearing that he'll come back and the wicked will be punished and they'll get what they deserve. Am I to be looking forward to that or rather to the fact that when Jesus comes we'll be delivered from all evil and go to be with him? Yeah. Um, yep, great question again. Um, I think both and. So uh, there's all sorts of things we'll be looking forward to, to, to seeing Jesus face to face, um, to the end of our own infirmities and um, being raised immortal and without sin and there's endless things that we'll be looking forward to. I guess in the context of Habakkuk chapter 2, I'm just focusing on the problem of evil and suffering and that that in particular will be brought to an end fully and finally then. And um, I often think when... When I preach through these minor prophets and you see these themes of judgment and particularly it can seem very harsh to us, Nahum, the book before, rejoices in the downfall of the Assyrians. It's like the end of World War II and VE Day and rejoicing over the downfall of the Nazis. And I guess my thought is that we live so well in Australia, the more wealthy we are, the more comfortable we are, this doesn't really hit us. But if you were being persecuted as a Christian, um, if you are really suffering, which you can be, of course, um, in Australia as well, uh, then you'd be longing for an end to that suffering. You'd be longing for God to do something about the evil. So, so I guess that the context we find ourselves in might make that difficult for us to understand as well. <laughs>